morning, family. I feel like we've, like, that was awesome. Like, let's go home. <laughs> death, where is your sting? That is, that is such an awesome point that uh, death for us is not a payment for sin, but an end of sin for us in this body of flesh. It's a great reminder, and it's why not one of us who are in Christ should ever fear death um, uh, in any of its forms. Amen? Amen. Praise God. That's awesome. I'm pass the plate, sing some songs, go home. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be finishing up, uh, possibly. Um, verses 1, 1 through 10, and uh, we've spent the last several um, weeks uh, and a couple of months going through verses 1 through 10 together, and we'll be focusing in on verse 10 this morning, and I'm going to invite you to read along with me out loud as we read verses 1 through 10 together. At the end of that reading, I will say that this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you then to say thanks be to God. Let's read together Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we have uh, made our way through this passage, these ten verses we've begun to see a picture of our individual unity with Christ. Paul, uh, after going through the doxology in chapter 1, showing us that God has this ultimate plan of uniting all things together in Christ, uh, he brings our eyes back down low to our own condition. In verse 1, as he says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, like Blake said, that we enter into this world, not, not tabula rosa, not a blank slate, but literally dead in trespasses and sins. David would write in the Psalms and he would say, in sin did my mother conceive me, in iniquity was I born. We are born into sin. And anyone who has children can attest that that is true by experience. Right? Anyone who was a child can attest by experience that no one had to teach us to sin. It was something that was natural to us. No one had to teach us to lie. No one had to teach us to hide the bad that we've done. It is ingrained in us. It is in our DNA, inherited from our first father, from Adam. And so we come into the world not inherently good, but rather inherently bad. And so we saw a picture as Paul pointed our gaze toward our own depravity. And this is what we've learned, that we are not as evil as we possibly could be because God in His grace is actively restraining the evil of men, but we are as far from God as we possibly can be because Sin does not make us bad, it makes us dead. And we're not only mostly dead, we are really and truly dead. And so because of that, we need 
what Paul then walks us through in this beautiful, scandalous, incomprehensible thing that God has done in redeeming us through His Son. And it is in that redemption, that redemption is so powerful that in it is the life of resurrection. And so Paul says here that though we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, bound by the world, the flesh, and the devil, following them wholeheartedly, but God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, because that's who He is, what does it say? He made us alive. So we were dead, but in this work of redemption, God through His Son has made us alive. And not only made us alive, but remember we were bound. So what does it say? He then raised us up, which means that thing which held us down is removed. So that we are not only made alive, we are not only reanimated, but we are raised up. We are freed from the bondage of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, will we still battle with the flesh? Until we die, like Blake was telling us. And then praise God, that battle is over, right? Do we still live in the world? Yes, but we're called to walk not of the world. And God, by His Spirit, is giving us the power every day to live in that place, though we will struggle. And will we still battle temptation from the devil? Yes, we will. But what do we have to remember? That He is simply a dog on a leash. And He cannot do anything unless God has allowed it. And we know that God causes all things to work together for our good and for his glory, which is our good. Those two things need to always go together. Amen? And so we see here that not only has he made us alive, not only has he raised us up, but then what does it say? And seated us with him, which means that this work that God through his son has accomplished is secure for us, as secure as Christ is. And Christ right now is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning until he makes every enemy his footstool. And so this work is not only complete, but it is secure. And there's great rest in this. And so Paul then walks us through and he reminds us that all of this has been done for us, yes, and how then has it been applied to us? It's been applied to us by grace through faith. Which means there was nothing that we have done, could do, will do, are expected to do to earn it. But rather, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us has bestowed it upon us. It is by grace and it is apprehended through faith. And Greg did a great job of walking us through what that really means the last couple of weeks and even showing us uh, these false things that we sometimes call faith that really are not faith at all. But there is a saving faith that is applied to us by grace and it is the gift of God. And so look at verse 9 and what does it say? Not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then verse 10 Paul comes in and what does he say? He says, for we, notice, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But now Paul says, but we, which means what? He's, he's lifting our gaze a little bit so that we can see that this work that has been done for us and on our behalf is not a single solitary individual existence that we have. It's not a, it's not a simply personal thing that has happened for us, while it is deeply personal to us, it is not only personable, personal for us, but rather there is a collective and communal thing that God is doing. And this is connected to Matthew 16 when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What is Jesus saying? I 
He said, I will build up my called out ones. This ecclesia. That you were not saved and adopted to then be the only begotten son or daughter of the Lord. There is an only begotten. It's Jesus. But you were saved not so that purely and primarily you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. You were saved so that you could be adopted as a dearly loved son or daughter and that not alone. Meaning what? That every other person who by grace through faith believes into the Son is also adopted, which means you have a family. And so Paul's lifting our eyes to see this communal work that God is doing through the Son into adopting us into a family. And this family is, is the family of God's own affection. We are His. We are His. But we are His what? We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prehend beforehand that we should walk in them. And so Paul gives us a glimpse of what is ahead because he changes his language from you to we. And as we move from verses 1 through 10 into 11 through 22 over the next few weeks, we're going to see that while we were being brought to see our unity in Christ individually, now Paul's going to start to point us towards our common unity in Christ together. But before we get there, he begins to sum up and to drive home this main point that we can see in the last three main phrases he uses here. What does it say? From verse 8, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. And those three phrases that Paul uses as he kind of brings this thought to a close and begins to transition into a new one with the therefore in verse 11, he begins to really drive home the whole point of everything that he's been doing and showing us this work of redemption. And that was simply this, to show us that you had nothing to do with it. Not of your own doing. And in case you want to argue with that, not a result of works, but lest anyone should boast. Right? Like, are you getting it? Are you getting what Paul is driving home for you? The thing that he's wanting you to see above all else? That yes, this beautiful, magnificent, amazing work that God has done, he has done all of it, and he didn't need you for any of it. He has done it. And he's done it so that no one may boast. No one may boast. As Calvin would say in his commentary on Ephesians, Paul embraces the substance of his long argument in the epistles to the Romans and to the Galatians that righteousness comes to us from the mercy of God alone. And it is offered to us in Christ by the gospel and is received by faith alone without the merit of works. Right? What, what is the, we, we, that was the first book we went together, uh, went through together as a church was the book of Galatians. And what was the, the one thing that rose up out of all of that, that man is not justified by works, but only by faith in Jesus Christ. So the purpose of all this is driving to that point in verse 9 when he says, so that no one may boast. Truly, this is the point Paul is driving home since the beginning of this epistle. And that this is all God's doing. That salvation and redemption are completely and totally a work of God from beginning to end coming to us from the Father 
in the Son, and by the Holy Spirit, and that all of this is specifically for and to the praise of His own grace and glory and according to the purpose of His own plan. You see, Paul, in verse 10 here, is summing up everything that he's just been telling us from chapter 1 and chapter 2. So let's dig into this verse 10 just a little bit more. It says, for we are his workmanship. In some translations, it may say we are his masterpiece or his handiwork. The word here in the Greek is the word poema, where we get the English word for poem, right? But each of these translations, whether it's masterpiece, handiwork, workmanship, all of them are accurate and acceptable And they really describe a different facet or way in which everything of who we currently are is a result of God's working and not our own. So when we talk about handiwork, so if if the translation says we are God's handiwork, what are we talking about? We're talking about something, handiwork. Think think about uh, uh, perhaps for for, uh, those of you who like needlework, right? This is intricate, delicate work that, that is down to the smallest detail, right? Um, where, where did your grandma ever do that? Or perhaps some of you do that, this, that needlework where you can get like this whole thing that looks like a painting, but it was just someone who just hours upon hours drew one little needle through these little grids on this thing until you have this, this beautiful tapestry Uh, that just was from this handiwork of just minute, detailed, designed work, right? Or or perhaps uh, tying um, flies for fly fishing. Just imagine having to have that magnifying glass and getting right down into the microcosm of everything that has to be done, just the the nitty-gritty, tiniest little details. That's, That's handiwork, and that's accurate to say that, that God is at work in these intricately planned and designed details that are calculated and executed down to the most minute detail. But then there's what we have in the ESV, which is workmanship. Now there's there's a different sort of facet and idea of God's work that's being talked about here, something that has been crafted, right? I mean, you can't even just say the word workmanship and not think like, Sears, right? Or Bob, Bob Vila from back in the day. Anybody? Right? I'm dating myself a little bit here, right? Like the craftsman, right? There's this idea of, of craftsmanship. And, and of course, we, we, our attention and, and our imagination is kind of harkened back to understand that our Savior is a carpenter, right? Perhaps even a mason of stone. And, and, and so now we see where we're being drawn out of this place of, of, of magnifying glasses and detailed work into this craftsmanship. And, and you don't just craft something to look at it, right? Things are crafted to be used, right? And again, this is accurate because God is crafting with purpose and he's 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 putting usefulness into his people and they're meant to be utilized and so we could say that when we look at God's workmanship that these things only reach their true potential when it's being exercised in its intended purpose and so we see handiwork we see workmanship and then I think the NLT says masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. And now, what kind of language are we using? We're we're using the language of, of art. This is something that is not only intricately designed. It's not only something that is useful in the way it has been crafted to fulfill a specific purpose... It's also beautiful. So it's, it's crafted with this 
purpose, for usefulness, and yet nothing is haphazard about it. It's, it's designed down to the smallest detail, and yet we step back and we just can be in awe and amazement that, that it's also just beautiful. It's beautiful. It's a work of art. Not just any old piece of forgotten or overlooked art, but rather it's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. Let's, let's remind ourselves just a little bit. Who, who is Paul writing to again? He's, he's writing to the church in Ephesus, to the Ephesians. And by virtue of his writing to each and every recipient of these things, he's already been talking about, which is what the the electing grace and redeeming love of God who through the faith applied to us by the Holy Spirit and because of the redemption by the blood of the Son, we have become adopted sons and daughters of God. He's, he's writing to the church, to the elect, to those who believe and trust in the sufficiency of Christ and His work for them. And on their behalf, Paul is speaking to the Ephesians and the Holy Spirit is speaking to us through his words. And what is he saying? He's saying that we are the intricately designed and beautiful work of God's hands that he has made for his purpose to uniquely glorify and reflect the genius and beauty of him as the maker. That's awesome. I mean, we talk all the time that part of what we want to do here is, is see who God is and, and see what God has done and what that means about who we are. Why? Because that's what informs our identity. And I think Paul has done a pretty good job of establishing that for us. He's showing us who God is. And what he's done in the work of redemption. And what that means about who we are. And he's literally just told us who we are in Christ. That we are God's handiwork, workmanship, masterpiece. The intricately designed and beautiful work of God's hands made for his purpose to uniquely glorify and reflect the genius and beauty of him as our maker. That's, that's who we are. Which what informs then what we should do. Which is what? The good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? Now, there's a ditch on one side of this that we have to be careful of. And it's the reason I did not want to preach this morning. Because that ditch is one that I am intimately aware of. And I want to describe that to you now in hopes that you may not fall into the same slough of despond that I have found myself in. <clears throat> you see, it is our tendency, or at least it has been mine, that once you hear those words, which, which are beautiful and which should give you hope and joy, that there is a tendency for us to latch onto them in such a way that we glory in being the masterpiece rather than in glorifying the master. That we glory in the splendor of who we are as the masterpiece of God rather than in glorifying in the one doing the workmanship. The creating, the sustaining, and the giving of purpose to the creation of His hands. I spend over a decade of my life building ministry on Ephesians 2.10, but not in a healthy way. I 
Because this verse had been used in my life and I used it in the lives of others to bolster the idea that God has a special plan and purpose for my life, for your life. And while I'm not rejecting that that is true, because if that wasn't true, none of us would be here. I was told that so much. And I so latched on to that idea that rather than humbly living to glorify God in whatever that purpose turned out to be in hindsight, which is usually the only way that you actually get to see the purposes of God. Purpose became my God. And having a purpose became my only pursuit. Such that I spent my life chasing that. Became an idol that I pursued and propped up and worshipped and worked for and sacrificed for, not realizing that I was living in idolatry and putting a Jesus label on it. My own golden calf casted from the sinful desires of my own heart. For me to dance around and say, this is what brought me out of Egypt. That having a purpose saved me. And that did for me what any idol will do for any of us. It enslaved me. It made me a slave because I had to continually spend my life doing instead of being. And it's something that I still struggle with today. So there's beauty and there is something awesome in what God is doing and what Paul is saying here, but we need not miss his emphasis. My error was in putting emphasis on masterpiece instead of what Paul puts his emphasis on, which is what? Look at the text. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's where the emphasis is. The emphasis is not in us as the masterpiece. The emphasis is in God as the masterful one. And that's where our attention should be. So here's the deal. This is part of the purpose behind Paul's writing. It was the whole point of putting in verse 9, so that no one may boast. Right? Why? To strip us of that idolatry. To strip us of that idolatry. We must look to Paul's design, one commentator says. For he intends to show that we have brought nothing to God by which he might be laid under obligations to us. Right? This is something we talk about all the time. There, there is nothing that we can do that can make God owe us something. There's nothing that you can do to manipulate God into doing anything. You can't pray the right words to get Him to do the thing that you want Him to do when you pray. You can't live a certain way to get Him to bless you in the way that you want to be blessed. You cannot do any of that because God is God and He is high above us and His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He is the sovereign. We are not. And there is nothing that we can do as creaturely people to obligate God to us. 
And he shows that even the good works which we perform, right? Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Don't miss the next part. What does it say? That God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So even the good works that we perform have come from God. They're His works. This, this is part of Paul's theology that just blows me away and I continue to have to keep coming to it and reminding myself of it because it is so contradictory to my own selfish heart, right? Because the flesh wants glory and it doesn't care where it gets it, right? But watch what God does through Paul. Romans 7, the good I want to do, I don't do. The bad I know I ought not to do, I still do. Who can save me from this life of sin? And what is, what is Paul's conclusion in Romans chapter 7? That the bad that's happening in him, who, what is it? What does he say? It's sin. He doesn't take credit for it. I mean, he's responsible for it before God, like all of us are. But he's pointing out that it's, it's still this battle of the flesh and that sin that's in him. And so the bad that's happening in him as a believer is not really him anymore because the him that is now has been baptized into Christ. He's in Christ, right? And so now he says, okay, the, the, bad, the bad I do, it's not me, it's sin. And then we go over to Galatians chapter 2. Verse 20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Which means what? That I don't get to take credit for the good either. On both sides of the equation, there's, there's nothing left for me. And that is Grace. Because the bad is sin at work in me, and the good I can't take credit for because it's Christ in me. So much so that Paul would write to the Philippian church in Philippians 2, verse 13, and he would say, For it is God working in you, giving you both the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Do you know what that means? It's the want to and the can to. Because there are times in our lives when we come face to face with what God has called us to do. And let's just be honest, we don't want it. We look at scripture, we look at what God has called us to, we look at what a life of orthopraxy, of walking rightly in orthodox, what, what we learn from here should lead us, orthodoxy should lead us into orthopraxy, into right living, into right practice. And we look at that and we say, I, I don't want it. I don't want that right now, God. And Philippians 2.13 is a grace to us because it says to us that we can cry out to our maker whose handiwork we are, who's crafting us, who's making us into this beautiful thing for his own purpose and design. And he, we can say to him, God, right now, I know that's what you want me to do, but I don't want to do it. Give me the want to. And Philippians 2.13 says that's exactly what God wants to do for you. And sometimes we have the want to. We see it right there. It's like, God, that's what I want. I want to obey you. I want to do it. But I just, I just, I can't. I do not have it within me to do it. And Philippians 2.13 says, that's okay, son. That's okay, daughter. I will give you the can to as well. Philippians 2.13 says that God wants to work in us and give us both the want to and the can to to do his good pleasure, to do what pleases him. And so we can recognize that even the good that comes out of us, the good works that we walk in are not our good works. They're God's, they're Christ's. They're the work of the Holy Spirit in us as he applies the work of the Son to our hearts and what God has done in and of himself from all creation. 
Hence it follows, this commentator would say, that we are nothing except through the pure exercise of His kindness. Think about it this way. We don't go to the Louvre in Paris or the Met in New York or even the local San Antonio Museum of Art to praise the art. And if you do, you're doing it wrong. (laughs) We don't go to these places to praise the art, but to praise the artist. The art simply gives us glimpses into the genius of the artist whose work we are admiring, but all the glory belongs to the artist, not the actual work of art. Why? Because the art is just clay or wood or stone or paint. They are raw materials that have been brought together by someone who had the vision to use them in such a way to present a message through beauty in the medium of art. So the glory belongs to the artist whose handiwork and workmanship or craftsmanship this masterpiece is. It's life, that work of art's life apart from the artist is as dead, lifeless, raw materials. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. What does God do? He, he adopts by going to the morgue. He, he steps into dead lifelessness and he picks up these raw materials and he says, out of this, I'm going to create life and beauty and something for my use, for my purpose, for my glory. When a Stradivarius is picked up and played by a master violinist, we would be insane to praise the violin itself. While we may admire it for its shape and grain and beauty, truly, what we are admiring and praising is the handiwork, workmanship, and masterpiece of Stradivari himself and the skill of the one who's playing it. In the same way, we must still see that the good works Paul mentions here are an outcome, a fruit, a byproduct of being God's workmanship. The reformers were fond of saying that faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone meaning that good works will always come with true faith because that's where good works really come from. Why? Because they're not our good works, they're God's good works. And hello, God alone is good and does good. Good works are not the root of our redemption, but they are the necessary fruit. And notice that the emphasis is not on the good works, though everything in our idol-making factory hearts wants to make the emphasis there. Everything inside of us is crying out for those good works to count for us. But that's not where Paul puts the emphasis. The emphasis is on God's working, His creating in Christ, His plans to do so from the very beginning which bolsters and reinforces Paul's previous statement that the opposite of what we want to be true is true, even here in verse 10, stated precisely in verse 9, that all of this work of salvation and redemption is not a result of works lest any man should boast. Over and over and over again, that's what we need to hear Paul saying to us. And he does. But rather... Any good works which spring from this work of salvation and redemption can still only be attributed to God himself. This is how it says it in the Gospel Transformation Bible in its notes on John 6.29. This is what's happening here, what Paul's doing for us. The gospel 
sabotages any notion of legalism or performance-based acceptability with God so that the only thing we bring to Jesus is our need. All we offer is the admission that we have nothing to offer. We can affirm with Jonathan Edwards, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin which made it necessary. And let me tell you why this is such good news. Because it is good news. If you're hearing it this way for the first time, and I will admit the first time I heard it this way, I didn't think it was good news. You mean I got nothing? I've get... What was all this? What was the last decade of my life for? Nothing? <laughs> for God's purpose to be fulfilled in my life so that I may come to a place where I was so burnt out that I would fall on my knees and say, God, only if you do it. This is why it's good news, because if we allow ourselves to be deceived that there are some good works that we must do to earn God's favor, we nullify grace and we make a mockery of the cross. Because we say with our works that it was not enough. But it was. It was enough. But if we don't believe it was enough, this is what will happen to our hearts. We will be led to believe that like us, God only loves some future version of ourselves. Because as long as we believe that there's something left over that we must do that Christ did not accomplish for us, we truly are admitting that God will only love a future version of ourselves and not the us that we are right now. Because that's the version of us that we love too. If we're honest. The version of ourselves that we love is the one who has it all together. Finally got my stuff together. <laughs> the one that finally has it figured out and has gotten it all right, that's who we love. And sin in our hearts makes us believe that that's who God loves too. Surely that must be who God loves too. But here's the undoing work of grace in Christ Jesus. God is saying to you, He's saying to me in Christ, I love you now. And I don't just love you now, I loved you then. In love, He predestined to adopt us. In love, He predestined to adopt us. In love, I looked forward at your dead, lifeless form and I set my affections on you. I, I set my affections on you so that I would send my son to accomplish your redemption and send my Holy Spirit to apply it to your life so that you could become my dearly beloved son or daughter. I loved you then. And I loved you now. I love you now. I love you while you're dead, dirty, bound. And I have chosen to set my affections on you. I've predetermined to ad adopt you as my own. And I will make you mine. He will make us his. 
Though we were not His, He will make us His. Not simply in a way of possession, but in a familial way. We who were not a people have become the people of God. And we have become the sheep of his pasture. The children of his love. And he says, I will recreate you. What does it say? Created in Christ Jesus for good works. He's saying, I will recreate you not only in my image as every other image bearer, but more specifically, I will by the Spirit recreate you in the image of my only beloved Son. For everyone on earth is an image bearer. But it is only those who by grace through faith have come into Christ that are being molded and shaped into the image of the Son. We're being recreated in Christ Jesus. And what does this mean for us? Turn to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to start to wrap this up. Romans chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 28, which everybody knows. But I want you to follow the continuity between what we have walked through in Ephesians chapter 1 and what Paul walks through after verse 28. Romans 8, 28, it says, And we know... That for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we, can we just affirm that like almost everybody, probably who not even a Christian, has heard that verse before, right? And then what do we do? We typically skip to verse 30, right? But let's not skip. Let's read verse 29. Follow the continuity between what we've seen in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 and what Paul says here. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We call this the golden chain of redemption. And notice that all of it is in past tense. I don't have time to go into all that. Chew on it. Take it with you for the rest of the week. All of it is in past tense. And then we get to the part that we always jump to. What then shall we say to these things? And if you skipped there, you should be going, what things? The stuff that Paul just talked about in the verses you just skipped in 29 and 30, all right? That those whom he foreknew, he predestined, and blah, 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 justified, glorified, all of that. That's what he's talking about. What shall we say about these things? And what does he say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Oh, the hope that is in that verse. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep 
to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now, if God has prepared good deeds beforehand, we must consider how and where we will walk today in order to fulfill his eternal purposes for us in Christ. This is what's happening. God is doing this and nothing can separate us from this work that he has done. It is accomplished and is established. So now what? Remember the Stradivarius. What tragedy or blasphemy would it be if you were to pick up that masterpiece of a violin and to walk outside and play badminton with it. Worse, how about tennis? Or baseball? Person should be locked up and thrown away, right? Why? Because that's not what that's for. It's not what it's for. What is it for? It's to play the violin. Here's what you need to know. You have been uniquely and intricately designed and made useful for whatever the Lord has designed for you to make much of His name and His glory. So consider who it is that God has made you to be. And then enjoy being the son or daughter of his favor and determine to glorify him by enjoying who he has made you to be instead of trying to be someone else or do what someone else does. And if that sounds rather elementary and simple, because it is. But gosh, is it hard. Now you may wonder why God has made you the way that he has. Or why you've had to go through the things that you've had to endure in your life. Or even why you've been blessed the way that you have when others have not and you feel guilty because of it. And I would simply remind you of what Paul says in Romans chapter 9. Verses 20 through 23. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Here's the deal. If you are in Christ, you are a vessel of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. Rejoice in that. But know that you don't get to tell God how to make you or even to tell him that he did it wrong. He's the potter. You are clay. Dust. I love that in Ephesians 2.10, Paul doesn't end by saying, created in Christ Jesus for good works that you must do. He 
I love that he doesn't say that. Instead, he says that we should walk in them. And I want you to see how closely related that is to identity. Because the good works are the Lord's. He's the one who's prepared them beforehand, and he simply invites us to walk in them. Being who we are as his workmanship, his handiwork, his, his masterpiece, the work of his hands. It hearkens to the words of Jesus in the Great Commission, most accurately translated as, as you are going, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. But what does he say? As you are going. In English, we just have go, Right? And we're like, okay, checklist out, go, make the box, going, all right, check. But there's this idea that Jesus was inviting his disciples to live out ministry the way that he did, which was what? Along the way, as he was going. What was Jesus doing? He was living out his identity as the only begotten son of God. And in that identity, he was walking in the good works that God had planned beforehand that he should walk in. His walking those things out was tied to his identity as who he was as the son of God. And now we're being invited into that same place of rest in walking in the good things that God has prepared beforehand for us. So let us walk in the good works that God has planned for us as we go today. But Mike, what about the good works? Aren't you going to tell us what to do? No. And here's why. There are imperatives in Scripture and right conclusions drawn from texts telling us the therefores of the gospel. And Paul's going to get there in Ephesians, and we will too. Many of the things we're going to walk through in the next weeks and months as we continue through Ephesians are some of the good works Paul's talking about. Telling us how we ought to rightly walk in light of the gospel, but I'm not going to give you more than what Paul gives you here, which is simply to walk. So rather, I'm going to say to you what Luther said to his church. Love God and do whatever you want. How can you say that? Isn't that just going to usher people into sin? You don't need any help with that. (laughs) Why can I say that? I can say that because... If everything that we've read today is true, then I can trust that those of you who are true believers will, from faith and love for God, not only walk in every good work, but want to and strive to do so and mourn and repent when you know that you do not. And no one will have to lay a whip to your back and you will still be faithful to gather faithful to give faithful to serve faithful to love one another faithful to preach the gospel not only to yourselves and to each other but to the lost and dead without hope that God in his sovereignty has placed you in their lives for so this is the work God requires of you believe in the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ. Lift your eyes to Jesus, repent of sin, believe the gospel, and yes, love God and do whatever you want. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Father, I thank you for your word this morning. And I pray, God, that it would challenge us 
that it would cause us immediately to go to Philippians 2.12 and know that we're meant to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, rather with, with awe and reverence of who you are and what you have done and lead us into the very next verse that, that God, it is you working in us, giving us the will and the power to do what pleases you. I pray this morning that, God, the word would not only inform our mind, but would inflame our heart. In love for you, let us walk in the things that you have prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Let us find the rest of loving you and doing whatever it is that you've put in our hearts to do. In Jesus' name, amen.